Donald Trump is here tonight. Remember the famous White House Correspondents' Dinner when Obama goes through with the show, and that's the one where he trashes Donald Trump that allegedly caused Donald Trump to, you know, want to have revenge against... All kidding aside, obviously we all know about your credentials and breadth of experience. Um, For example, uh, no, seriously, just recently, in an episode of Celebrity Apprentice... Do you think there's anybody that's going to get motivated to run for president from being insulted this weekend? Is there anybody we can think of? Like, if there's Tucker Carlson. Hey, you know who I hear they're also going after? I mean, apparently the um, comedian has mentioned that one target of his jokes is Clarence Thomas. Oh, we will see. But I hope it doesn't urge him to (laughs) to run for president. (laughs) Thomas, twenty-four. We may know why. Oh my god. Welcome to The Political Scene, a weekly discussion about the big questions in American politics. I'm Jane Mayer, and I'm joined by my colleagues Evan Osnos and Susan Glasser. Hi, Evan. Hi, Susan. Hey, Jane. Hey there. Great to be with you guys. This week, President Biden officially launched his re-election campaign. Over the last four years, strategists, members of the press, and voters have speculated that Joe Biden might only serve one term in office. He described himself as a bridge, but to whom? One conclusion from his announcement this week is that it won't be a bridge to Kamala Harris anytime soon. Biden chose Harris to cement ties with black and women voters, and she played a key role in Biden's 2020 victory. But like other vice presidents, she's discovered that the job is less than an ideal launching pad for her own political ambitions. Some of the reasons for that are beyond her control. Others seem to be issues of her own making. Regardless of the reasons, some Democrats are even worried that she could be a drag on the ticket in 2024. So what to make of the Harris vice presidency so far and what effect she will have on the 2024 campaign? Let's start with Biden's announcement this week. Why, in the end, did Biden decide to run again? What do you guys think? I think, well, let's talk about actually the launch itself. I mean, uh, it was what we might describe in the restaurant business as a soft launch. Um, It was a (laughs) a video that was designed almost deliberately, I think, not to cause a huge kerfuffle. They wanted to just sort of get it established that he is, in fact, running and then move on. They've made a big point about saying he's going to continue doing the business of the presidency. And in fact, you saw most of that this week. And I think part of that is because when you're the president, you have a lot of big structural advantages when running. You can more or less run from the Rose Garden. You can meet with foreign leaders. You can look very dignified and all that sort of stuff. I think a couple of things struck me about the announcement. One, you see, obviously, there is a natural symmetry to what he did in 2019, where he talked about the battle for the soul of the nation. I don't know if you guys have heard that we're in a battle for the soul of the nation. <laughs> he may have mentioned that. But that idea, which it remains really at the core of it, he's kind of upped the stakes a little more. And he used this word, which is a fascinating thing. He's describing it as, a, as about freedom. Personal freedom is fundamental to who we are as Americans. MAGA extremists are lining up to take on those bedrock freedoms. The question we're facing is whether in the years ahead we have more freedom or less freedom. Which is language that traditionally has been really sort of reserved for the right wing. And he's kind of snatching it back for liberals and saying, hold on a second. Actually, your personal liberty is at stake. But I just want to mention one thing that I find really compelling. I went back and looked at the re-election video that Barack Obama used 
in 2011. And if you look at it and compare it to what we just saw, in 2011, it was like an acoustic guitar over images of a farm and a church and a quiet suburban street. Well, it seems like the last couple of elections that we've had have been um, almost kind of turning point campaigns. And all the talk in the video was about how we've sort of turned to this corner in American life. And that's the feeling that was in the air. And what we saw this week, which was this very grave and sort of dire announcement, is actually a fair reflection of where the country's mood is, certainly among Democrats. And that was the most interesting thing for me, was this little sense of where the zeitgeist is and just how profoundly different it is than 12 years ago. Well, we're, we're sort of on the precipice, it feels like, of something he's he's promising to hold off if he possibly can, I guess. I don't know, Susan, On what the precipice, we've yeah. been over the cliff. I mean, let's be <laughs> honest here. I mean, you know, the images that, that begin with the video are the images of January 6th and Americans ransacking their own capital. And I still, I you know, going to be like a broken record here. Like, this is the context. It is not a theoretical challenge. We are in the middle of a crisis. And I think that the Biden video accurately reflects that. The problem, of course, let's talk about the Rose Garden strategy, because I do think that's absolutely the plan here. And of course, it's the plan, right? So there were many aspects of this announcement that were, in a way, even almost generic, you could say, to a first-term president seeking a second-term presidency. What is the slogan he's rolling out? Finish the job. Unfinished business. We've got more to do. We're about to turn the corner. Things are looking up in America. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, these are almost, again, they're almost generic. But what does he do the next day? He has the state visit Biden in the Rose Garden holding forth on, you know, nuclear policy with South Korea and trying to hold off the North Koreans. You have the Donald Trump circus In the other ring, split-screen TV, you have Donald Trump in a Manhattan courtroom, a judge reprimanding him for attacking a woman who is on the stand (laughs) who says that she was raped. She claims that she was raped by Donald Trump decades ago in the dressing room of a Manhattan department store. And on any given day for the entire rest of this campaign, given all the legal troubles and the criminal indictment and the potential additional charges against him, you could have this kind of unseemly courtroom spectacle with Donald Trump any given moment for the very rest of the campaign. But, and here's the but, you have Joe Biden. It should be an easy pitch, right? You know, a swing and out there. I mean, Donald Trump, the biggest, you know, sort of liar and clown ever seen in American politics. And yet, Biden has real liabilities that I think we have to talk about, too. And that goes right to the the heart of the show today, because he was asked this question at the press conference by ABC News. Okay, sir, but your age, the vast majority of Americans, both Democrats and Republicans, do not want a rematch between Joe Biden and Donald Trump. One of the biggest factors they cite is the advanced age of the president, 80 years old, even Democrats who are very positive about his uh, accomplishments, about his administration, don't really want him to run again for a second term. Yet he's doing so. The question was, is it you said you can beat Trump and you are the only one. Is that the reason why you're running, i.e., because you don't think that your own vice president, Kamala Harris, or another Democrat can win. And I think that's been, so to speak, the elephant in the room for many Democrats for the last couple of years is this gnawing anxiety that in the middle of this existential crisis for democracy, that they're kind of stuck with Joe Biden because they're not convinced that Kamala Harris 
or another Democrat for that matter, could emerge as strong enough candidate to beat Donald Trump. And you think that's what is at the base of the low approval ratings for Biden, that rather than them being really a reflection of his record, that it really is the anxiety about his age? Yeah. There's a fascinating bit of data, actually, if you look at how Democrats feel about Joe Biden. 47 percent of Democrats say they want him to run. It'd be nice for him if it was 57, but it's 47. And that is up a little bit. But I will tell you the interesting fact is that 78 percent of them say they approve of the job he's doing as president. And so there is this sense of anxiety around a very specific fact, which is age. Let's talk about it for a second. I think Jim Clyburn this week, interestingly, you know, one of Biden's greatest allies, said there's going to come a point where he has to talk about it in a full-throated way, in a kind of head-on way. And I think that's probably true. He can't kind of just continue to say, look, experience is valuable and watch me. Everybody is watching him. It's part of the reason why they're feeling nervous is because he sort of looks older than he did, obviously, a few years ago. So he's going to have to talk about it. And I think if they're doing their jobs right in preparation for that, there's a way for him to make a case that says, I probably couldn't have done this job as well 40 years ago as I could today. And if I don't think I can do the job, I'm going to I'm right, not But the hour it. is late because the truth is, is that that's the question she should have been prepared to answer this week when he was asked it. And yet when ABC News asked him that question, I found the response, you know, really striking. And I would suggest that our listeners go ahead and listen to it. He rambled on for nearly 700 words. With regard to age, uh, I can't even say, I guess how old I am. I can't even say the number. It doesn't, it doesn't register with me. And uh, But the only thing I can say is that... Um, one of the things that people are going to find out, they're going to see a race, and they're going to judge whether or not I have it or don't have it. I respect them taking a hard look at it. I take a hard look at it as well. I took a hard look at it before. He did not have a crisp, clear answer to the most obvious of questions. And I think that, in a nutshell, is the challenge. And that's the I reason have... why we're, you know, Republicans instantly, they practically didn't even comment on the Biden video with the exception of the usual barrage of Donald Trump, you know, insults and attacks. Most <laughs> of the Republicans just skipped immediately to a vote for Joe Biden is a vote for Kamala Harris, which to them is on its face intact. They don't even need to explain. I think one thing is it's, in a way, the fact that this is happening at the very beginning when there are still 500-plus days to go in this campaign yeah. is, in a strange way, actually helpful because it gets the issue established early. They can deal with it. They can talk about it. The question, of course, is, is it going to be, is he going to look better or worse over time over the course of the next two years? We've seen him at moments like during the State of the Union when he had real kind of vigor and focus and, you know, this cut and thrust with the Republicans in the chamber. That's the Joe Biden that they are going to need and want to put out there. Well, I think just common sense tells you that in your 80s, it's the rare person who starts to really get better and better. (laughs) I mean, I think that's the, the worry. And as you guys have said, there is this existential fear of what will happen if he fails. And I think that that is reflected in these polling numbers. I also have to say, I think it's it's a sign of bad management at the White House or, or campaign consulting or whatever, that he didn't have a quip ready the way, you know, well, I mean, again, it's seen, not exactly a trick question. No, right? I mean, it's a question everybody in the entire country is fixated on. And you would think they would have had a prepared answer and maybe something, you know, quippy and, and fun the way that uh, Ronald 
Ronald Reagan was ready for it during the debates when it came up for him, and he had a joke all set that he didn't write, but it still carried the day, you know? Anyway, I Biden mean, so- could have said that he refuses to exploit Donald Trump's youth and inexperience. <laughs> right. is what you well, perhaps we'll soon be hearing that. Um, I um, suspect we will. Know, and, by, should- and it is worth pointing out, Trump is 76, and that is one of the oh, most helpful things absolutely. that Biden's got I, going I for. I have to say, like, the idea that it's a choice between two people, and Donald Trump's age was actually a factor that was used successfully against him. I just want to say one thing about that is is often not said about Biden's situation right now, which is because we're all so focused on his weaknesses and, you know, there's so much fear that he might sort of fall by the wayside and deliver Donald Trump back to the White House. But at the same time, he's actually in a pretty advantageous position if you look at it historically. He does not have a primary challenger. Yeah. This is this is not Jimmy Carter having to deal with Teddy Kennedy. And on the Republican side, there are primary challenges. Challengers, and they have the front runner who is, as Susan said, <laughs> facing multiple unbelievable legal situations and charges. But that said, when you look at that video, one of the things people noticed in this announcement video is there are a lot of pictures of Kamala Harris, but there are not statements from her. She doesn't speak. Let's take a look at Harris. What do you think is going on with her? Is she a drag on the ticket? Is she what would you say is the state of her vice presidency? Susan, you've you've paid close attention to this. Well, look, I mean, she's clearly struggled. Uh, the White House doesn't deny this. In fact, one of the big stories this week was, you know, the carefully planted news in Axios that they were going to have top White House advisors to the president help rehabilitate her image. You had Ron Klein, the former chief of staff, considered to have been her kind of patron and support inside the White House, giving a big interview saying she's getting a bum rap. I noticed, though, very uh, distinctly in that interview that he says, well, she's not given enough credit for her accomplishments, which he then did not go on to cite what exactly those were. I think, Harris, you know, there's so many factors, right, that we can unpack, but we're just talking politics here. We're talking, is she or isn't she going to help the ticket in 2024? And The numbers are not good. Biden is one of the least popular presidents in modern times, aside from Donald Trump. He is really underwater with the voters. Well, Kamala Harris is even less popular. So one of the reasons is sheer numbers that you see Republicans attacking her. I think another reason is that it's a way for them to go after the Biden age issue without just being tacky about it. Although, by the way, Nikki Haley this week was as crass as I've ever seen any politician. She literally went on Fox News after Biden's announcement, and she said, well, it's very likely that the president's going to die in the next five (laughs) years. I think that we can all be very clear and, and say with a matter of fact that if you vote for Joe Biden, you really are counting on a President Harris because the idea that he would make it until 86 years old is not... Um, is not something that I think is likely. It's why I've continued to say we... And therefore, a vote for Biden is a vote for Harris. So that is about as crass and even ghoulish. And as Evan said, like, okay, the campaign is already ghoulish and it's essentially one week old in its formal She's sense. She's like, right? like as charming as someone selling you a life insurance policy. <laughs> well, it's the actuarially <laughs> argument, you know, um, yeah, and so, unbelievable. So, so, so age Nikki is one of the issues. On the charm. Yeah. But, I, but I, I, I don't know really the, the broader answer, actually. Actually, And I'm, I'm curious. I've talked with people, as I'm sure all three of us have, being here in Washington doing reporting. I've talked with people in the Biden administration who work directly with Harris. 
some of these very unflattering accounts, I can I can say firsthand, are coming from inside the room. You know, it's not being made up just by Republicans. You know, this is, in effect, the criticism of her has come from those who have observed her firsthand or worked closely with her. Evan, why, Evan, yeah. why do you think that is? I mean, and do you hear this too? I mean, it seems there's a fair amount of scuttlebutt about personnel problems in her office. What, what do you hear? Yeah, I mean, this is one of the a story that's kind of been recurring in various places over the course of the last couple of years. And it's, you know, it generally adheres to a few ideas. One, that it's a sort of insular office, that there's just a, a, a mood, a, a tempo, a sort of a sense of low morale in the vice president's office. There's been a lot of staff turnover. You know, I think that the fact is that this is, in the beginning, this partly was coming from elsewhere in the White House. There's been an effort over the course of the last couple of years to try to push back on this. And one of the things that her friends and supporters will say is that they feel that she's being held to an unfair standard, that if you had the head of an office who was a guy, let's say a white man, then he would be, it would be described as a sort of tough, take no prisoners kind of place. But in her case, it's being described as a place in turmoil in which the boss is cut off and not respectful or responsive to people. And I think there is a a way in which we have to take that very seriously, that I think her presence, her role in this administration from minute one has been under such an intense spotlight. And I think just thinking about it on a personal basis, just the level of pressure on her is extraordinary because she came in, not only was she the first black woman, first South Asian, first female vice president, all of these are just extraordinary levels of scrutiny that they bring. And on top of it, people were saying, and is she going to be the heir to the oldest president. And all of that, I think, made it, let's just say that it was not a particularly forgiving Washington in which she was arriving. I mean, she was she was not a very safe choice, really, for Biden to make in a way. I mean, she was a bit of a gamble for him. She wasn't very well known, even, in, you know, not spending a long time in the Senate. I mean, I do, I follow a lot, watch online how the right handles her, and she's been just their favorite target, along with maybe a couple other women of color, you know, Alexandria Ocasio of Cortez. You know, she, to some extent, maybe is moving into the slot that Nancy Pelosi had. There's a certain amount of sort of reflexive sexism and racism that definitely she is, I think you can say, incontrovertibly the recipient of. But she's had some tough issues that they've, she was handed to. Did they, did they give her the dogs of the issues to deal with? I mean, wasn't it immigration and voting rights? Two really tough things to try to fix in this country. But, you know, maybe that's what do you think, Susan? Has she muffed the issues she had? Well, I wouldn't say that she has solved uh, the border problems or the immigration issues. And, you know, you're right. Those are not an ideal portfolio for a politician looking to make her mark in the country. The political scene will be back in just a moment. The vice presidency is is a pretty crappy job. Uh, and historically, that's been the case. Kamala Harris is not the first vice president to face these issues. While she is the first woman, the first woman of color, she is not the first vice president to struggle uh, with exactly these problems about what exactly is her portfolio? What has she done? What has she accomplished? How can she be both loyal and successful? Uh, You know, we all remember John Nance Garner, who was one of FDR's (laughs) 
vice president saying it's a job that's not worth a bucket of warm spit. Um, By the way, he didn't say spit, but that's the family-friendly version. <laughs> right, exactly. Well, uh-huh. this is a family-friendly podcast. But, you know, I think I think it's worth recalling here because I'm struggling, as I'm sure you are, to say what is it that she has done that's successful. I do think these, these issues of her own management, they're not new to the vice presidency. These were issues that uh, dogged her. Senate office and that uh, accompanied her presidential campaign, which, by the way, was so short-lived, she didn't even make it to the voting in 2020. Uh, And that was a campaign that was riven uh, by conflicts, not only about personnel, but I think more relevant to this political discussion about who is Kamala Harris as a politician? Why is she running for national office? What does she hope to accomplish? And that's, I think, the critique that's much more relevant than issues of why she does or doesn't have a communications director at this given moment. I think, to me, the question I have is much more what animates Kamala Harris uh, besides personal ambition? Uh, what you know is her principle for potentially stepping in tomorrow to the toughest job and the most powerful job in the world. What um, what has she done? She certainly has seemed to come alive more, I would say, uh, in the wake of the Supreme Court's decision throwing out Roe versus Wade. This is the one, I think, kind of political winner of an assignment that she's been handed by the Biden team, which is to be kind of the point person on the renewed fight for reproductive rights around the country. Uh, She seems much more engaged and vibrant when she's making those speeches. She gave a big speech about that this week at Howard University. I trust the women of America. I trust the people of America to make decisions about themselves. I trust them. And so don't get in our way, because if you do, we're going to stand up and we're going to organize and we're going to speak up and we're going to say, we're not having that. We're not playing that. And so you can begin to see sort of the glimmerings of what, you know, might be something that, you know, really personally engages her in the job. But I think it's fair to say up until now, for the last couple of years, I would have a hard time uh, identifying what it is she she's wanted Uh, to be besides a a loyal uh, vice president, which is a tough thing to be. One of the constraints, uh, just a functional constraint on what she was able to do in the first couple of years was defined by the fact that the Senate was 50-50, which meant, as people will remember, that the vice president uh, casts the deciding vote. And people think, oh, well, how often does that really happen? Well, in her case, she did it the at least 39 times. And there have been times where Joe Biden never did it in the vice presidency. I mean, this is not an ordinary situation because the fact that she had to do all that meant that she really couldn't be very far from the Senate, literally couldn't be more than 24 hours away. The times that she has gone overseas in a couple of cases, there's been value to it. I mean, some of her supporters will say that her visit to Munich uh, shortly before Putin's invasion of Ukraine, in which she sort of established America's level of concern and focus on it, they would say that 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 was a success. They'll also point to her visit to Thailand for the APEC conference. Look, the point is that she didn't have uh, as much room to run as other 
vice president. Yeah, that's great. I, I, on a curve. I'm sorry, Evan. Like when <laughs> Joe Biden was a vice president, he was handed major foreign policy issues to negotiate. Actually, you can argue about whether, as you know well, uh, you know, he was in charge of uh, the question of whether the United States would stay in Iraq, uh, uh, which it ultimately did not end up doing. You could argue that was one of the, the precursor moments to ISIS. In a more positive sense, Biden took his foreign policy expertise as the former chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee and was a key person dealing with the countries on uh, Russia's periphery and trying to reassure them and to come up with a new strategy for countering Russia. I mean, he was supposed to have been the point man with the Senate for Obama a lot of the time also, and because he knew the Senate. It right. didn't always work out very well, though. But those are much more real assignments, though. It we did, have to it, say, like, sure, but, showing up at the Munich Security Conference is not a foreign policy well, triumph. all right. I, I actually thought something that Ron Klain said, who when he, he was both chief of staff to Biden when he was in the vice presidency and also in the presidency. So he's a pretty good perspective on the differences between these two jobs. And I thought something he said was was very smart, which was, we're in a country that loves the number one. Yeah. We're, we're in a country <laughs> yeah. that venerates power and wants to see the, you know, the big shot and the boss. Being number two, not so much. I mean, you look like a chump. Mm. You are the person who's, you know, as as I described Mike Pence at one point, you know, he, he had the, that sort of the gaze of Nancy Reagan as he looked up at Trump. It's not surprising. If you look back, I counted. If you go back to 1976, um, only two of the vice presidents have successfully run for president. Mm. And one of those was Biden, who didn't do it immediately. Yes. He was passed over, and it was Hillary Clinton who got the nod to run in, from Obama in 2016. And he had to kind of wait it out, and then he came back and he won. But um, it, it's not a great launching pad. And and I, I, you know, I remember there was a great statement I loved, um, which was um, from Lyndon Johnson about this. And he was asked by Claire Booth Luce, why would you want that crummy job? And he said, well... Well, darling, I'm a gambling man, and this is the only chance I've got. So, <laughs> you know, so people take it in high hopes that, you know, it's going to be the thing that's going to get them to the White House. But on the way there, they often don't look good. A lot of them, look back at the list of them. I mean, look at Dan Quayle. The only word you remember is potato. That he told some kid <laughs> that he'd spelled it wrong when the kid had spelled it right in a spelling bee. I mean, it's just, it's not a good showcase of a job. You know, Jane, it's funny that you brought up LBJ because I have to say, if you read the volume of Robert Caro's uh, incredible biography series of LBJ, his volume on LBJ and the vice presidency is literally the portrait of misery in Washington, more vivid and devastating than than any I've ever read. Totally. Who likes that job? Cornpone, they called them. Uncle Cornpone. That was what uh, Bobby Kennedy was calling Yeah, the him. cool kids in the White House did not like LBJ. And there was actually a similar kind of dynamic, honestly, between Wait, the Obamas the and the Bidens. I mean, right. that was part of the simmering just below the surface. Absolutely. They had the sort of like, you know, sharp guys in skinny suits feel to them. <laughs> the Dan brought, Quill example yeah. is an interesting one, actually, in the context of talking about 2024 and uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, because as much as we remember Dan Quill as almost the kind of proverbial loser vice president, I don't think there's anybody who would say that the reason that George H.W. Bush lost re-election after a single term was Dan Quill. That, you know, as much as he was perceived and, you know, constantly written about as like kind of a bad vice president, 
Uh, Bush went through uh, a kind of brief flirtation with the idea, should we dump him from the ticket, concluded, as all other modern presidents have, that that's a political disaster. Uh, You know, there was endless speculation about Biden. My guess is that he didn't consider for one minute uh, getting rid of Harris uh, for the reasons that it would so alienate important Democratic constituencies, not to mention call into question his own judgment in picking her in the first place. But This is the big question, which is, can she or would she possibly be a drag on the actual ticket in 2024? Would she affect the outcome? I'm very dubious of that. As much as Republicans are attacking her and will continue, I think, to very viciously attack her, it's it's hard to imagine that that is decisive. In the end, this is going to be about Joe Biden. The choice he made this week was a very risky choice. He chose at already being the oldest president ever to run for re-election so that at the end of his second term, he would be 86 years old. He did it for some very good reasons. He has uh, compiled an impressive record at a time when people didn't think it was possible to pass some of the bills he did. He has been a staunch advocate of uh, freedom uh, around the world, standing up to Russia. He has uh, uh, shown that he is willing to take on Trump and Trumpism. But at the same time, it's a very risky decision he made. And I think that in the end, if he makes it all the way until November of 2024, it's going to be a referendum on him. Evan, you have pretty good insights into Biden land. Do you think that he ever really considered not running in a serious way? I think that the question that we began the day with is a key one, which is, is there another Democrat that he thought could win? And the judgment at the moment, not only of him but others, is there is not. And you have to remind yourself, one of the things that this uh, that this launch was very good at was taking you back for a painful moment to what it felt like in a Trump presidency. You know, I was down this week near the White House standing at outside of St. John's Episcopal Church. Remember, that is the scene. People will remember that indelible moment where there was tear gas that was unleashed on protesters and then Donald Trump kind of came out of the White House and held a Bible in front. It was just, it was really at one of the real low moments of 2020. And I was there and it was, you know, the fence, the wall that was around the White House was gone. It was a spring day. And I had this strange moment of sort of like, when the ball has reached the height of its arc <laughs> and you don't quite know which direction it's going to go before it lands. And it and it's a feeling both – it was like, OK, we're at the beginning of the next chapter here. And I think we have to take quite seriously – I know we get pretty dismissive of the language around the soul of a nation and this sort of stuff. But I actually think if you take yourself back to what this choice really was about, what it was about in 2020 and what it will be about in 2024, it really is nothing less than a referendum on the character of this country and what it is that we want to be. And I think, you know, sometimes in Washington we snicker, that sounds a little grand and so on. But actually, that's what this will come down to again. If Donald Trump is in fact going to be the nominee, all of this question about the, you know, how serious was everybody's, it's really going to come down to something as grave and fundamental as are we going to go back down that path? And I think Americans, and I may well be wrong, are not going to choose that. Well, I think the gamble that you pointed out of taking the word freedom back from the right wing and trying to package Biden as the 
protector of freedoms, personal freedoms, freedom to vote, all of this is a really interesting sort of move politically because for a long time that kind of language has been owned by the other side. And I, I assume they must have focus grouped it to death and figured that it sells well also to independent voters who they really need to bring back, particularly maybe on, on reproductive rights for kind of freedom for uh, suburban women. And I, I think that's a very interesting play. I mean, it's it's beyond Biden himself. It's, a, it's a, a matter of interest to the Democratic Party if they can try to position it to have values that are um, values that have been somewhat subsumed by the other side for a long time. So I'll be curious to see if that works, basically. Yeah, it's, um, it's the, it's the recap in a way of a form of patriotism that, that as the Republican Party has basically killed off Reaganism, right? What we've seen in the last few years is a transition from the party of Ronald Reagan to the party of Donald Trump, which has a, a different kind of catechism, different ideology. And, you know, it was Reagan who back in 1964 gave this famous speech, A Time for Choosing, in which he really was the one who sort of co-opted freedom as the kind of Republican you know, brand for a couple generations, really, of American politics. And he framed politics as a choice between freedom and security. And I think it is a radical decision, a really interesting decision for Biden to try to take that back in the same way that you see Democrats now talking a lot more about American values and American democracy. Why are they doing that? Because the Republican Party has become the party of Donald Trump. It's become the party of people who are willing to charge into their own capital and smash it when they didn't get their way, when they didn't follow the rule of law and a rule of law country. And so I, I think that that's the crisis and that's the moment and that's the precipice that we kind of leapt over, unfortunately, uh, back in the actual Trump presidency. You know, that was that was a moment that you just sort of can't undo. And that's why I think Biden has also broadened his campaign. He's no longer running just against Donald Trump, the man, which is if you look at his video from 2019, that's what it was. This man is essentially an aberration. He is a gross departure from the American tradition of presidents. Now you have four years later, this man and the philosophy that he represents, Trump and the MAGA Republicans, are the target of the Biden 2024 campaign. And I think correctly so, because what we're seeing is that it wasn't a one-off with Donald Trump, that it is actually the transformation and the radicalization of the Republican Party that now is at issue. And so I think the stakes are very high because it's both about the question of defeating Donald Trump if he becomes the nominee again, but also more broadly, how does a Democratic Party contest this new magified, Trumpified Republican Party, not just now, but in the future? If you look at those who are seeking to succeed Donald Trump to get the mantle, they're as Trumpy, if not more so, than he is in, in many key respects. So it's if, not just a replay then of 2020, right? Well, if it's you look at the bigger? video, yeah. if you look at the video, it's not an accident, I'm sure, that at the very moment that he says MAGA extremists, they showed Ron DeSantis. Yeah. Ah. So this is, uh, you know, <laughs> okay. if they need to, they've got... They but can to, pivot. Your, to your point, Jane, why is this sort of, it's not exactly a replay, but it's something to it. I, I think that there has to be a really hard study and self-scrutiny by the Democratic Party about why there is this 
gap, why it is that there has not been a more systematic effort to make sure that an, a rising generation of stars was given the space and the opportunity to lead and to thrive so that we're not in the position of depending on people who are uh, at this stage in their career. And then I think there's a, one other reason perhaps why we're facing a kind of rerun, and that's because of the, the divided nature of the country, that there are all kinds of different voices who might want to contend to be the next face of the Democratic Party, whether it's, you know, Cory Booker, Gretchen Whitmer, or Kamala Harris, and in some ways, Pete Buttigieg. But in some ways, there is a knock on every one of them. And that would be the, you know, I'm putting that in quotes. And I think part of the reason why it's very hard to consolidate behind any one person is because you're kind of requiring that person to have this huge pre-existing name recognition and stature. And there aren't that many people who are in that position to do it. Well, there's also just the usual problem that someone in power is reluctant to give up power. I mean, no matter what else it says about the party and everything else, it comes down to the man, uh, Joe Biden, his decisions. And his decision was like most presidents' decision, which is to go for a second term if they can. Absolutely, uh, you know, Jane. Look, um, let's let's be real. The reason that we're having this conversation about Joe Biden running for re-election is because he spent his entire life basically wanting to be president only became president in a very unlikely way on his third try. And, you know, as as one of his friends was quoted saying this week, like, of course, he was always going to run again. It, it shouldn't have surprised anyone at all that we are where we are. This has been The Political Scene. I'm Jane Mayer. Thanks so much, Susan. Thanks so much, Evan. Thanks, Jane. So great to be with you guys. We had production assistance today from Alex D'Elia, Dan Richards, and Catherine Winter. Stephen Valentino is our executive producer. Our theme music's by Allison Leighton Brown. We're taking a break next Friday, but we'll see you back in two weeks. Thanks so much for listening.